Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here today with Andrew Wilcox, who is the president of Wilcox and Hackett LLC. So Andrew is an expert on one of the most important things, in my opinion, about growing a business, which is the quality, type, and timing of people that you're bringing into your business, into your law practice. So I'm really excited to speak with him, and thank you for coming on the show, Andrew. You're welcome. Happy to be here. All right. Awesome. So I wanted to ask you, it's kind of an interesting niche that you found yourself in. How did you get into recruiting for law firms? Uh, well, I, when I graduated college, I, I did what everybody wanted to do back in the late 90s, which was either sell IT or pharmaceutical sales. And so I started out in IT. When the bubble burst, I actually got a call from a recruiter to go work with a co- little company called Westlaw. And so for about three years there, I was your friendly neighborhood Westlaw rep and worked with fine law sold to the, uh, the state government, but also to small, mid-sized law firms. Mostly it was you know, personal injury, criminal, family law, but some of the, I guess you could say the defense side or commercial side as well. And as crazy as it sounds, I really enjoyed working with attorneys. And uh, I had somewhat of a strange confluence of events where I was about to have a child. We were building a house. I figured, let me just throw as much stress into my life as possible. And I had a few <laughs> people say, you know what? I'm a recruiter. You know what? You'd be great at this. And I had... Uh, a couple of firms that approached me and said, you know what, you're out in the market. Do you know a good litigation associate? And I'm like, oh, as a matter of fact, I do. And I had another firm ask me about an environmental associate. I'm like, well, actually, I know one over here too. So I had my first two placements, I guess, while I was with with Westlaw. And I had a recruiter down in South Florida kind of took me under her wing. And I came out and I said, you know what, I, I could kind of do this on my own. And I felt like my sales and marketing background, my business background really lended itself to, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I might as well do it on my own. And uh, so I've been doing this since 2003, primarily started out working with associates. And now I primarily work with partners and groups uh, with some associates. I am mostly throughout the Southeast, but I also have placements in Seattle and just place somebody out in Las Vegas and Reno. So it's kind of a smattering around the country, but for the most part, my focus is on the Southeast. Okay. Super interesting. And I mean, I don't know how much recruiting you've done outside of the law, but what do you think the challenges are with hiring in the field of the law versus just recruiting in general? Well, because of the complexity of what some law firms are looking for, it, it, I, I have some firms that come to me and say, Hey, you know what? We're looking for a litigation associate this many years to this many years. And depending on the firm, uh, they're going to want a certain pedigree, uh, the type of law school they went to, the type of grades that they graduated with, uh, but also, and I, I don't want to throw the the generation <laughs> under the under the bus here a little bit, but uh, somewhat work ethic as well. Uh, and I've heard that a lot over the last probably ten years. One of the reasons why I don't work with associates as much anymore is around two thousand nine, two thousand ten. I had eight associates get eight offers in one month, and they all turned them down. And it was and I, so let me let me reverse engineer some of that. Some of it was my managing partner was mean to me on a Friday, so. I decided I want to look for another opportunity and they would go through the entire process for a month and a half. And they said, well, you know what? They're nicer to me now. So I'm going to stay put. They'd make a move for $2,000, uh, you know, oh to go God. from one firm to another. <laughs> you know, I had other ones that, you know, Hey, I, I want to, I live closer to one city. I'm commuting for an hour. 
And when they went to give notice to their firm, they said, well, we like you. If you want to live and work an hour away, that's fine. We just want you to stay working with them. So they turned down the opportunity there. So I think a lot of it is trying to get through some of that business acumen or some of the, you know, hey, why are you, I I think there's a lot of short-sightedness on the associate side as far as, hey, this is, this is a move. I could always make another move and all that. And they realize, they don't realize is after two or three or four moves, it really becomes tough to make that right move. So it's, it's all very much in the moment, in the instant, I need to make a move now and all that rather than taking a five or 10 or 15 year look on their career. And I think when you're in your forties and fifties and sixties, you have a level of perspective that you're able to look back and say, yeah, you know what, if I had, I had waited three months more, maybe the right opportunity would have come along rather than jumping on an opportunity. And now that wasn't right. Now I've got to find another opportunity and, and some of those type of things. I think you just have a level of perspective. And like I said, I don't want to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, get off my lawn type of old man or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, I think for law firms, they have to filter through that. And I think that doing more diligence, I used to have people that would go through a series of interviews in one day where they'd meet with three, four, five people, and then they'd get an offer at the end of the day. And I think that law firms are being smarter about that. They're dating longer, for lack of a better term. You meet with somebody, you meet with them uh, at a different time of the day. Maybe you meet with them. Uh, you know, a couple of people at a time or whatever like that. And you just, you date, you court for a while and you find out, is this somebody that uh, over a period of time that they're a good candidate, they're going to be a good fit for us. Sometimes you lose people like that, but for the most part, um, small law firms, in my opinion, have to be more diligent because they can't swing and miss on a candidate only to find out six months later that it was the wrong person. You could bury somebody like that in a big, big law firm right. and say, you know what, we'll transfer them somewhere else or we'll give them, you know, we'll give them another year. But you could take a significant hit in a small law firm if you're three, four, five attorneys, you hire an associate to work with you and you're having to spend more time mentoring and training them and all that than actually, then your leverage is gone. So I, I think more than anything else for the small and mid-sized firms, being more diligent and, uh, you know, vetting people more effectively as well. Because I think small and mid-sized firms have a lot to sell. Uh, they may not pay as much as the, the mega firms or whatever like that, but I think that they have a lot of other things that they could sell a candidate. But there is that uh, there is that courtship process. Right. And you bring something up that's really interesting too, because it's like there's no standardized test for work ethic or trainability or anything like that. And the kind of work that you're able to do for somebody as a recruiter hopefully is a huge source of value to them not being able to like see those blind spots themselves. So how do you help gauge that? Like what's, what are the characteristics of someone that like, you know, is going to be a good fit versus somebody who looks flaky or might not be the best down the line? Well, frankly, a lot of attitude. When I talk to somebody who's made a move two or three or four times, or maybe it's their first time and there's not uh, you know, uh, emotional intelligence is always kind of a big buzzword right now and everything. Right. But when I start talking to them and the reasons that they're looking to make a move are not business related. It's, uh, you know, again, the managing partners mean to me, or this person, uh, was a little intense or I have a tough time doing this or, you know, everything is all about, it's always somebody else's fault. It's always somebody else's issue. I have a tough time dealing with those are red flags to me. Um, Mm -hmm. and if they're red flags to me, they're going to be red flags to the firm. As I said, I spend a lot of time talking to, to law firms, especially, you know, the small firms. When I talk to them about, what their goals are. Every firm has some ver- variation of a no jerk policy, but right. they also, one of the reasons why I bring value to them is they put an ad out there. They're probably going to get a thousand resumes. They're looking for five, maybe from all the different sources that really match up to what. So my value is to bring somebody to them that can they do the work? 
are they qualified? Do they meet the minimum qualifications? If they're looking for a two to four year or three to six year or whatever like that within that range, do they have the pedigree that they're looking for? Are, you know, do they come for, from a specific law school? Does that matter to a, a law firm? Do they have, if it's estate planning or something like that, do they have an LLM? What type of work have they been doing up to this point? So a lot of their, a lot of their backstory, have they worked their way through college? Are they, uh, where have their failures been? Do they, how do they respond to those? Is it something that, again, is it always somebody else's fault or are they willing to share their war stories a little bit? Yeah, I took a little bit of a bloody nose on this one, or I, I remember I had to do this and this was a lot of hard work, but I came through that. Those are the stories I'm looking for because those are people that, you know what, when it gets intense and it's going to get intense, especially in a small firm where everybody's kind of around each other. Is everybody going to be in a foxhole together or is this going to be somebody who, hey, you know what? Somebody said something the wrong way or they were a little bit mean and now there's closed doors and people need to vent. And, you know, that becomes somewhat, and I hate to mix my metaphors here, becomes kind of a cancer in the clubhouse. And uh, law firms, law firms, especially smaller law firms, you know what? If they've got a good little thing going on, the last thing you want to do is introduce uh, an element into that firm that is divisive. And again, that's not able to do the work. It's not bringing value. So um, I, like I said, that, that's usually the big thing when I'm talking to attorneys is tell me about what you've done wrong and how you fixed it. Tell me about uh, why you're looking to make a move. Is it a business issue or is it a personal issue? If it's a personal issue, is it something you could work out? You know, if it's somebody who's been harassed and that's, that's something that is very serious or they're at a firm that culturally is not a good fit for them, okay, but let's talk about that a little bit more. But I try to unpack the reasons why. And again, if it's, hey, I'm looking to make a move because I want to become a partner. I'm not a, on a partner track at my firm. I need a firm that's going to mentor me. I need a firm that's going to be able to do this, this. I want to be able to market. I want to be able to take that next step in my career. Well, that's a business issue. If it's my firm is, is holding me back and I can't do this and you know everybody's mean to me and all that, then eh, yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. always say drama, drama tends to travel and th- that drama will travel. So- yeah, I was gonna say it was like that old thing. It's like, you know, if you run into a jerk on the way to, to work, maybe you ran into a jerk. If you run into a jerk every day of the week, then you know, chances are you might want to start looking inward, right? <laughs> yeah. If it's always somebody else's fault, then it's probably your fault, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then to kind of uh, dig in on something too. So we've talked about uh, you know, like a lot of the things too. And then this is something I, I we were talking about a little bit on the pre-call was basically, you know, small firms versus big firms. So what kind of advantages does one of those smaller firms have against one of the bigger firms? In terms of uh, presenting would, something that, like you know, that a, that a top tier candidate would want to work for, well, it, it becomes really difficult. I, I will tell you that, in all candor, in in the years that I've done this, when it's been between a big firm and a law and a small firm, usually the big firm wins out. People can get romantic about the small firm, and they can say, "Oh, I loved everybody there; they were great," and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, a lot of it, especially at that age, when you have maybe student loans or you're trying to get ahead or whatever like that. And you're trying to make a move to a firm that maybe a five-year, 10-year, 15-year plan or whatever. They're willing to leave a little bit of money on the table. But if you're looking about one of the AM Law top 20 firms or whatever like that, that just becomes, they're, they're just going to throw a lot of resources. And, and you know everybody's been in their 20s and 30s and all that. If the, if the choice is I'm a second-year, third-year associate, and I'm going to make $180,000 over here, or I'm going to make you know 90 or 110 or 120 over here, the things that would sell me, first of all, it tends to be more of a boutique. So if it's estate planning, I'm working with really good estate planners. Um, you know, these are people that, and not only that, they're doing the math. They're realizing, you know what, in five or 10 years, when I'm ready to become a partner, I may be in a position where those partners are looking to retire and I could ultimately take this practice over. They've built up a great practice. These are good people doing good work. I can come to work every day and, and, uh, 
I'm not being flown all over the world. I'm not having to deal with, I can, I can work with really good attorneys in a really targeted area. Well, then that, that has a selling point. But for the most part, once you get outside the niches, if it's a general corporate, general litigation, you're looking for somebody that is looking for something a little bit different. And frankly, some of those issues are going to be, you know, maybe it's a family. They, they don't want to, uh, I've had plenty of uh, associates that have worked at your AM Law 20 firms that they haven't had a holiday off in three years, four years. Yeah. Uh, those people talk. So the idea of, hey, I can make an $180,000 a year, but I'm never going to be home. I'm never going to see my family. That's a tough sell as opposed to, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, at, uh, I'm in a small firm and we have our holiday parties and uh, everybody goes to each other's kids' uh, showers and birthday parties and all that kind of stuff. It takes somebody who really wants to be part of that. But when you come out of law school, I mean, every, most attorneys are type A personalities. They come out, you go to a top law school for a reason. You try to finish at the top five or 10% of your class for a reason. And so you at least want to go to one of those large firms, frankly, and uh, you want them to beat you up for a few years so that, A, you can pay back your student loans. Yeah. But after four, five, six years, you could say you've hit major league pitching. And uh, if that means that from that point, you're going to a small, mid-sized firm, usually you're getting them after that first or second move with the idea that, okay, now I want to become a partner. Now I want to make a book of business. I don't want to give away a disproportionate share to you know, offices all over the world. I don't need a thousand attorneys. I just need a handful of attorneys that do really good work and I could run my practice really well. That's the picture that smaller firms have to paint attorneys is what is your upward mobility? What resources can we give you here? Can you achieve what you want to achieve? And painting that vision so they could actually see that because a lot of times, like I said, their eyes have been set on, I want to go to you know, Cravath. I want to go to New York. I want to go to DC. I want to go to Scott. You know, and that's great. It's, it's being able to take that mindset and saying, do you need that? Or it's almost like the Doc Hollywood thing. Do you need yeah. that big plastic surgery out there in LA? Or could you practice really good family law or, You know, here in this town, right? Or fam family medical. I'm, I'm mixing up all the metaphors there, but you get the idea, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting too, because I'm seeing like sort of a convergence. Because like one of the things that you mentioned earlier is like there's there's sort of this new trend. And I mean, this isn't anything that anyone doesn't know, but it's like as far as just like, you know, millennials wanting to pursue lifestyle balance and maybe having a little bit more purpose in their work and that kind of thing. But it kind of seems like for some of the people who are really, really dug in on that as being an important thing, small firm might be the way to go. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about the large firms. The gap between the small firms, what the small firms and the large firms can offer to those people, I think has shrunk because as long as you had a high speed internet connection, as long as you could log on, you could work for a firm really anywhere. But you, again, you have to have a firm that has that vision as well. And usually it's somewhat in a region. If, uh, you, don't, you don't see somebody from Atlanta at a small firm and then you have somebody that, you know, hey, I want to move to Denver uh, or I want to move to Salt Lake City or, you know, Bend, Oregon or whatever like that. It's, hey, I, I, it's a small firm in Atlanta. Maybe that person lives in Chattanooga or they live in Noonan or they live, you know, something like that right. where it's, if I need to plug into the mothership, they're there, they're an hour or two away. But for the most part, I can go do what I need to do outside the house. The other thing from an associate standpoint, and this is more associates, is that loss of communication. And I think that's one of the things that's been lost. Some firms have done it better than others. But when you don't see each other, one of the bigger selling features of a smaller firm is, again, being able to walk down the hall and you could have a lot of conversations with people really targeted and you know they're, they're more accessible like that. And I think large law firms, you have those where you, hey, I, I want to be able to see what my associates are doing. I want my associates to come in here. I want us to be able to work like that. With your small law firms, that's, that's going to be a challenge. 
Um, right. if, if I've got a five-person law firm here and I'm in Tallahassee and I have an associate that lives in Jacksonville, it's tough for me to, I could be on Zoom calls, I could text them and all that kind of stuff. But unless they're really a go-getter and a self-starter and, and they're getting with me and we have that really worked out, that's going to be tough. I'm, I'm going to want them around me so that there's not a miscommunication there. Right. So and it, it is so it's possible to get those those benefits, but you really have to lean into it. And I think honestly, that's that's something that's that's really interesting because I feel like the larger firms tend to like have the better infrastructure at, at the end of the day, too. So it's like it might not be something that people have thought about, but it's something that's definitely come to everyone's doorstep in the last year for sure. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted uh, to this is something that you brought up that I thought was really interesting. So kind of the people that are doing the math, right? So let's say that you have and this is something that we've talked about with other guests. So it would be interesting to kind of triangulate what you think about this, Andrew. So, uh, so basically, what do you think of the strategy of people who are looking for succession planning? What does that arc look like? And is it a realistic path to take in terms of getting somebody to eventually replace you if you're you know, seeing the end of your career coming in five or 10 years? Right. Well, and, and we talked about here a few minutes ago, really, the, the succession planning comes down to one of three different paths. We've got a, a good group of folks here. We need to build out. We need to add more people to that. We need to start mentoring people that we have here to take this, this practice over, take this firm over. Or, you know, hey, we've got a small group of attorneys here. We really don't want to do any of that. We just want to be able to plug in with a law firm. And ultimately, they take care of the clients. They take care of our associates. There's one or two partners who are maybe a little bit younger, but nobody really wants to take over the firm. We just want to plug in and be able to have their administrative capabilities, their full service capabilities, and some of those type of things. So really, there's three different paths to that. The, the one thing I will tell you, uh, I, had, I had a law firm down in Miami that went from about 50 attorneys down to 10 or 15. They told me that they wish that they had done their succession planning 20 years earlier, because now the choices are being made for them rather than them making the choices. Because they've asked me and said, hey, can you go find partners with books of business. I'm like, well, what exactly am I selling them on? Because yeah. they're going to look around and they're going to see three, four partners that are taking a good share out. They're coming in a couple of days a week and they're all pushing 70 years old. So I don't want to, I don't be mean, but they're going to look around and they're going to say, well, that's great. The only option for that partner to come in is, okay, I could take this firm over someday. But if that's not where the law firm mindset is, and it's, we just want to bring in revenue so that we can keep feeding ourselves and all that. What attorney that has a good practice is going to come do that? I, I would actually question that. Uh, the, you know, why would you leave a Greenberg traveling to go to a, a 10 person firm and, you know, to, to do something like that? So I, I would tell you that it's never too early to start on succession planning. The other thing, too, is communicating that up and down the firm. If you've got associates or if you've got junior partners, maybe service partners, and I, I've got a partner I'm actually friends with, that his firm would be in a ideal situation for succession planning. Every attorney there, all the main partners are in their late 60s, early 70s. He's been with the firm since he graduated law school. He started out as a clerk, went to an associate, became a partner, works well, just a great guy. He said, if they've got a succession plan, I don't know anything about it. Well, that's unfortunate because he's going to get a call from somebody like me that says, you know what? They may come in on a Monday and say, I've had enough already. Uh, we're going to fold up shop or two or three people are retiring. And now no, nobody knows what's going on. Meanwhile, if, if you wanted that, that partner to be groomed, that partner should have been groomed for the last two or three or four years and brought into those meetings and been part of that process uh, so that when those attorneys leave, hey, you know what? We're handing this over to somebody that we've brought along. It's kind of our homegrown candidate uh, so that 
in 10 years, 15 years, they're still having lunches together. And how's everything going? And let's share war stories and, and all that. That's the ideal situation. But a lot of firms, they really want to hold tight to, no, no, we're only making this decision. It's only going to be three or four of us. We don't need to get anybody involved. And unfortunately, that's how you take a 50-person mid-sized firm, let's say, down to 15 because I don't know if this firm's going to be around in a couple of years. Let me go ahead and explore other options. And you start having groups of three, four, five leave, and then you're down to that small group. And then again, decisions start getting made for you. The other thing I'll tell you is this, and I hear this a lot from small and mid-sized firms, is, well, how much is my practice worth? What could I sell my practice for? And I caution people on that because, A, I don't, other than maybe two practices in my entire time of doing this, I've never heard of a firm buying another firm outright. Because let's face it, it when, there, when there's a merger, when there's a su- succession plan, when somebody leaves, it's what I call a triggering event. So if you've got a small firm and they're used to servicing those clients and those clients are perfectly happy with them, now we say we're going to merge with this other firm. Well, you know what? Uh, now my rates are probably going to go up. Well, now I've got to deal with bureaucracy. Now, instead of me calling this attorney I've known forever, now I've got to call through this phone chain to get to this person. Well, you know what? What are my options? Maybe there's another small firm that's like them that I could at least explore my options with. So you may say that you've got a $2 million or $3 million or $5 million worth of revenue. But if you leave and you join, you can't really sell that. Those aren't quote unquote institutional clients because those clients may leave. So the idea of well, how do you mark that then if you're a mid-sized firm trying to buy them? So a lot of it is kind of equity credits or some sort of trailing you know, revenue or trailing, I don't want to say commission, but you know, hey, you're going to move into enough council role over the next couple of years and mm-hmm. you're going to pay you out over a certain period of time. We'll pay you a little bit more on the front end. But really, they're kind of taking a headache off of these people's shoulders. So, right. um, so yeah, but the idea of, hey, we're going hey, to pay you two and a half X what your revenues were for the last two and a half years or the last two or three years, that's probably not the case. So I, I, I caution your small and mid-sized firms to say, oh, you know what, we're going to build up and then we're going to sell. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. It's kind of interesting too. So I was, uh, I was sort of leading the witness on, um, triangulating that stuff. Cause I was, I was thinking about, a, a an episode that we recorded with a gentleman by the name of Rory Ginsburg, who actually specializes exactly in, in selling firms. And he says the exact same thing that you did, Andrew, which was like, basically, you know, like the accountant math does not play out more often than not. Um, because like, yeah. like you said, you know, every single time you have a huge change, people are going to be reevaluating the nature of their relationship. Right. So it's like, it's, it's yeah. not as transferable as a lot of people exist. On the flip side, though, I wanted to ask about one of the things, too, and this is another sort of triangulation question. One of the things that I know is really, really important as far as somebody's uh, market value as a candidate would be their book of business. What other valuable traits would somebody have? Or you know, can we talk about the book of business and, and how that really transfers to what your salary would be in an incoming firm? Well, book of business is great. And, and um, first of all, I try to work with firms that it's not all about the book of business. I think a lot of firms have been burned on that, frankly, because again, if I've got a million dollar book of business or a million five, I think a lot of larger firms have gotten smarter over the years and they've institutionalized those clients for a variety of reasons. And a lot of them are just their client reasons, but they're also law firm reasons. If I bring in a client and now I'm doing 30% of their work, but I've got a labor and employment attorney that could do 10% of that client's work. And I've got a real estate partner that could do another 10% of that work. Well, now our tentacles are on that client. Uh, so that clients, the chances of that client going to another firm are, are few and far between. The downside of that is, is now I've got a million dollar book of business. I may have brought them in, but now I've got eight other people working on matters around here that they're happy with the firm. They're looking to stay put. So it may be a rock fight on the way out trying to take that million dollar book of business. And frankly, 
That's why a lot of law firms are spending a lot more time and diligence. They're doing what they call lateral partner questionnaires and all that, but it's almost the equivalent of like a three-year tax audit. I mean, it's every, uh, let me see the numbers in the most metric form out to the fifth decimal point over the last three years, how much have you billed them, how much have you collected? So they're looking for a lot of granular information off of that for a couple of reasons. I think it's weeding people out. People don't want to go through 17, 18 pages of all of that. And frankly, a lot of times they don't have access to it. But the other thing too, is like I said, the the institutionalizing of the clients makes that tough for anybody to say, quote unquote, book a business. They could say they brought it. They could say, I'm the only person here who's servicing this and all that. That's great. The one thing I will tell you is that's, if you ever look at like a mutual fund prospectus and they they talk about, well, this is what the last two or three years performance has been. Well, that's great. That gives you a snapshot. What I work with attorneys on is creating, if they haven't already, a business plan. Because the book of business is backward looking, whereas the business plan is forward looking. When you go in and you talk to a firm about what your goals are and you're able to have a conversation with, you know what, I have a corporate practice. I really need a litigation practice in these areas. Well, now I'm having a conversation about I, if I had that, I believe I'd be able to bring in this much revenue. If I went to these seminars, if I do these five seminars a year, or if I went to this conference, which is really targeted to this specific industry, then I, I believe I, now you're talking about an investment of time. You're talking about an investment of resources. But you're also painting a picture of how I go out and get my clients. You know, the old term about uh, being an unconscious competent. I can't yeah. tell you how many attorneys I talk to that they have a $500,000 book of business. It's always, it's always in $500,000 increments, by the way. It's either yeah. a $500,000 <laughs> book of business, a million. You never hear anybody say, oh, I got about an $823,000 book of business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but when you ask them how they got it, well, you know what? Every year I just, I go do these few things and it just seems like I get good referrals and all that, but they're not able to, uh, put metrics around that. And then I talk to other attorneys that say, well, this is how I do it. I go to X amount of lunches a week. I do have this amount of calls. This is how many. And they, so they have a broader vision of uh, these are the people I talk to. I always, I, I once or twice a week, I do this, this, and this. Well, you know what? That paints a vision of profitability, which ultimately that's what the firm's going to care about that they're going to is, okay, let's say half that book of business doesn't follow you, but you at least have the business development chops that when you come in here, who do you need to talk to in that other practice area? Um, it's a practice area leader or whatever like that for you to sit down and business put together a business plan that says we're going to target these clients. When you get in front of those clients, do you know how to have a business conversation rather than just talking about your legal acumen and all the things you could do for them legally, but really kind of figuring out more about their business and their practice and how, how maybe you could bring in other business for other practice areas that aren't yours. Those are the types of things that when I could because it just changes the conversation completely from what you've done in the past to how you're looking to do in the future. The other thing too is, frankly, it's the same thing with associates, is attitude. I think most attorneys of a certain level, you realize there's, there's going to be a certain ego. People mm -hmm. are fine with that. Uh, if you're an attorney who's a partner at a law firm and you can't respect an somebody's ego they walked in with when they've done really well in their practice, eh, that's, that's going to be tough. Uh, you got to realize most of the folks that are going to be working are some sort of alpha dog uh, you know, or yeah, type yeah. A personality or whatever like that. So if they're, if they're going to get there and, and be able to talk about their background and their experience and their, you know, some of the things that they've accomplished, then great. But from an attitude perspective, again, you want partners that I don't care if somebody's got a $5 million book of business. If they're going to come in here and six months later, half the people are going to want to leave because they're slamming doors and they're using four letter expletives or they're harassing people or whatever. Most firms don't want that. I don't care what the book of business is. It is very rare 
that that you're going to have somebody that's going to want to to bring somebody in like that because it's going to hurt the the firm culture overall. I don't know if that answers your question fully or not, but no, totally. Yeah. I, I mean, it's such an interesting perspective because it's like, I mean, people just kind of mention the book of business thing kind of offhand, but like, I mean, I think you've had a, a much more thorough look at it, which is like the book of business is, is kind of like whatever. It's like a principle, right? Versus yeah. if you have the business plan, that's like having cash flows that are coming in every time. And it's ultimately, you know, especially considering that it's harder to transfer these things that a lot of people might realize it absolutely makes sense to do the kind of stuff that they're yeah, that you're recommending people that are doing from a candidate perspective because that just makes them more attractive. It's like you know if you're buying a business, you're going to be in a better position. Like if you can consider any partner that you bring in, kind of like a little mini acquisition of sorts, right? It's like you know there's a yeah. reason why it takes a million five to buy a McDonald's franchise, and you can you know break ground in your own yeah. restaurant anywhere you want. It's the process that's the difference in terms of what's the value coming from. So really, really interesting perspective. The one other thing I'll tell you too is from a business plan perspective, and I tell this to attorneys all the time is when you're creating them, A, it's a good exercise. I don't care if you're a solo law firm up to whatever, but it really becomes a, a list if you, and I don't know if you do this like a pros and cons thing or whatever like that, but I kind of call it my tolerate, not tolerate list. Mm-hmm. If I'm looking to make a move to a firm and I, the firm I'm at right now, they're making me charge my clients, let's say $800 an hour. They want me to go to 850 or nine. This happened a lot, surprisingly, after the recession. <laughs> you know, we're looking to get from our rates from 800. I'm like, during the worst time in history, you're going to make your, your rates go up $150 an hour to your clients. But some law firms were making that gamble that, hey, we're, we're going to race to the top on those rates. But if you're a, an attorney that says, you know what, if I had more flexibility with my rates, and instead of 700, I could go into 500, 600, whatever like that, that would help me with go after these specific types of clients that frankly, I have to leave behind right now. Well, that's part of your business plan. So when you're interviewing with a law firm or you're evaluating your opportunities with law firms, well, I'm not going to want to go to a law firm that, you know, now they're going to make me change or raise my rates by $100 an hour, or I'm on the low end of their rate. In six months from now, they're going to make me pump those up. If I'm going to go to a law firm that if I'm an IP attorney and all of a sudden now I'm going to have conflicts with them. Uh, that are going to come up all the time. Oh, do I want to go to that law firm or do I want to go to a law firm that I'm not going to have those conflicts with? Am I going to have associate support? Am I going to have administrative support? What What is the ratio of associates to partners? If I'm not getting a better situation and you can list those things, that really helps you go through the interview process. And again, it changes the conversation because it's not you're interviewing me and we're in this subservient. I'm, in, I'm being interviewed, you're interviewing me. Instead, it's Here's what I need to be able to take that next step in my practice. I've codified it. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Here's where I've had success in the past. Here's where I've spent a lot of time that hasn't been fruitful, and I want to leave that stuff behind. Here's the stuff that is fruitful, and I want to I want to multiply that. And here's how I need to multiply that. If you're not going to give me that, then let's go ahead and just you know part company and say thank you very much. And now's not the time or whatever. But instead of interviewing with 15 firms, ideally then you start interviewing with one or two. And then it's, it's a lot more focused of a conversation. And again, when you're going after clients, let's just say this you know, for your, your small firms, your one to fives, uh, if I'm an estate planning attorney, well, you know what? I get a, a, a piece of business that comes through the door that's a personal injury case. And it may be a, a client of mine. They, have, you know, they got into a car accident. And now they want me to do that. You know what? It, it doesn't make financial sense for me to do that personal injury case. Now, I may pop a big one and I may make a million dollars in contingency fees on that. But that one, that one big one, if I sent that off to somebody who does that work specifically and I can get a referral fee for that, well, now I'm not, I'm not changing my business plan. I'm not changing what I'm doing. I could focus on doing what I'm doing. So when people come to me, 
They know I'm not just taking anything that comes through the door. No, I'm an estate planning attorney. This is what I do. And this is why I'm focused on doing what I do. I'm not just, hey, you know what? I got a DUI issue and I got this. Sometimes it's really tough to walk away from business that it's, you know, you could do. But when you when you have that list of things that you're willing to do and not willing to do, and you're able to focus your efforts, it just makes your conversations with your prospective clients, with prospective law firms, with yourself. You know, when you say, I, I don't need to do all that. I'll give you an example. I get asked all the time, hey, do you ever place paralegals or legal assistants? I don't. A, they'll, they'll change jobs for $1,000 uh, in a raise. Not to be disrespectful or whatever, but that's just, I, I don't want to have to manage that. I don't want to have to manage, first of all, I got to find somebody and I'm going to place them. And then two months later, they're going to make a move to someplace else that's going to, I don't want to deal with that. And so that, to me, that's very freeing. I very, very uh, rarely work with associates because that's just not where my sweet spot is. So trying to figure out those things that you're willing to tolerate, where you're willing to tolerate them, and then moving forward, it just makes a conversation. It frees you up. It's very freeing to do that. Yeah, I got to say, I mean, it's mutually beneficial too. Like who wouldn't on either side of that equation want to have a situation where people are looking for alignment? But segue, <laughs> as far as your specialty, Andrew, what would be the best thing? So um, if, if people are liking what they're hearing, who are the best people who uh, should be reaching out to you and on either side of the equation? And, and how would they go about getting in touch with you? Sure. If you're a law firm that says, hey, you know what? Uh, and it could be attorneys that are in their 40s or 50s. And you say, hey, you know what? Uh, what happens if somebody ends up passing away or has a, an illness or whatever? What's our plan? Uh, we all like each other. We all know each other. Maybe we've came from a big law firm together. But is there a plan? Is there an outside resource that would be able to codify what a succession plan would look like? And if you're looking to bring people in, maybe what that would look like, not just finding an associate or finding a junior partner, but what what are some of those things that they would need? So from a succession standpoint, any any group that may be in their you know, 30s, 40s, all the way up to their 60s, you, know, you, could, you could always do some of that stuff as well. If they're five years out, three years out, whatever. Let's. So I'm, I'm happy to have those conversations. If you're a smaller law firm and that says, "Hey, you know what? I'd like to bring in another partner that maybe does." If I'm an estate planning, I'm looking for a corporate. I'm looking for a real estate partner. Can you help me find that? Or I'm, I'm, you know what? I got a good practice, but I'm tired of the administrative side of this. I don't want to join a mega firm, but you know, how can I merge my practice in with another firm and maybe become a beachhead for them in a certain area or something like that? Those are really the areas I'd, I'd love to work with folks on. I do a lot of business planning. I do a lot of client development planning with law firms. They may be really good attorneys, but they've never had a business conversation or they are at that $500,000 mark and they want to get to a million or a million five. And that just seems like a huge mountain for them to be able to climb. When in fact, a lot of times it's the stuff that they're doing that they could stop doing that would free up time, that they could spend more time and resources in areas where they're more fruitful that I could, I could help them navigate as well. So from a, uh, and it's, and the client development thing is always funny because I, I talk to law firms that, you know what, if, if we have you come in and we have you train our associates, all they're going to do is build a book of business and want to leave. How are you going to make those attorneys partners someday and expect them to make a book of business when all they've known is how to practice law and they've never had to, you know, have a business conversation or walk somebody through a quote unquote sales process. So I, I try to work with firms like that. I do firm retreats where I'll come in for a couple of hours and, and talk to them about a, a variety of things, whether it's succession planning or client development and those type of things. So those really kind of the, I guess that if I could put those all in a bundle for them. So yeah. And what's the best uh, way to reach out to you, Andrew? Um, you can reach me by uh, emailing at uh, Andrew at Wilcox, W-I-L-C-O-X hyphen legal.com. Or you can call me at, you can call or text at uh, 850 
274-7849. I say text because it's funny. Nobody calls anymore. Most yeah. voicemails are full saying, I don't check my voicemail. Uh, but I, it's funny. People will text all the time. People text me in the middle of mediations and depositions and everything else. But yeah. 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 <laughs> That's right. And it's, it's, it's actually funny. You reminded me of a quote too. I think this is Zig Ziglar. I mean, on the training side of things, the people always say like, hey, well, what if I train my people and they leave? And it's like, well, what if you don't train them and they stay? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Either, but um, all right. Uh, well, I super appreciate all the time that you take, uh, Andrew. And this has uh, been a really interesting, wide-ranging conversation. I really uh, may have had an opportunity to go a little bit more into the business development stuff, but we'll leave the door open for another conversation down the line. But um, thank you again so much for coming, and for everybody else, I will see you next Tuesday at eight AM Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.